We are going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, but I'd like you to turn, if you would, first to Mark chapter 10. There's going to be a few places I want you to be uh, today, if you can. If you brought your copy of God's Word, you can find one around you in, in the seats, and you can follow along there, open your tablet, your phone. Mark chapter 10. It's good to be back together again in our study after a week of uh, sending Eli and Jess. We're back in our God's plan for a healthy church, studying through the books of First and Second Corinthians, and Mark's of ministry as we got to chapter 12. Of Second Corinthians. We're back, and, and um, we spent the week really sending them and rejoicing in what they were doing and, and spending some time with them, sending them to the mission field. It's been both a joyous occasion as they are, of course, embracing the Great Commission and will be sowing seeds of the gospel in an unreached people group, but also heart-wrenching because uh, we miss them, don't we? <clears throat> and I was reminded as, uh, of this as I was reading Mark chapter 10, verse 17, this week in my private time in the Word. I'd like you to read with me, if you would, and I think that this will encourage you, perhaps shore you up and maybe um, challenge you a little bit. As he is, verse 17, Jesus, Jesus was setting out on a journey. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 18. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. But you know the commandments, verse 19, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Verse 20, And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Verse 21, Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him, a compassion, and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess, and give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Verse 23, and Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Verse 27, looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with him. What's the problem here? What, what's, what's, what's going on? So you have a guy coming up to Jesus who obviously has lived a moral life, has uh, walked perhaps as he should. He's, he's concerned that he's not born again, that he's not going to see the kingdom. He wants to know how to see the kingdom. And Jesus gives him the commandments. Are those the way to life? Can you be saved by keeping the commandments? No. And then he looks inside and he, he sees the real issue as he interacts with this guy as he felt compassion for him. And he tells him to go take all he has and sell it and give it to the poor. And then he'll have a treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Now, does that save you? Will that save you if you come and give all you have and give it to the poor? Is that going to redeem you? No. What's the real issue? The real issue is Jesus is looking at this young man, and he realizes the real roadblock to his redemption, which is his things. And it's not that having less makes you more spiritual, having more makes you less spiritual. In fact, in the New Testament time here, um, the disciples were amazed when he says how hard it is for a rich man to get into heaven. Why? Well, because most people assume because you're really wealthy that God is what? Favoring you, right? I mean, you have a lot, so God must be really blessing you, so you must be really spiritual. This is, this is the connection that they're making. And, and so when he says how can a, it's really hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom, uh, we understand because we've studied money and, and all of that that um, a lot of times wealth makes you feel like you're impervious to catastrophe, right? That you've insulated yourself to the point where you don't really have to worry about difficult things and that that can insulate you to the fact that you're really in a lost state. So Jesus sees the heart. And Peter grasps what's going on here. Now look at verse 28. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. So he gets it, okay? The guy wouldn't do that. That's the thing that was this real roadblock. His, his wealth and his possessions had their hooks in him. And so Peter says, Hey, we've left all and we've followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who's left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive, verse 30, a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. 
but many who are first will be last and the last first. And then earlier in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, Jesus says something similar, and he summoned the crowd, verse 34 says, with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What's the overriding theme here as you think about all of this that we just read? It's really that there is a high cost, isn't it, temporarily to being a disciple. There is a high cost. I mean, there's no question, there's no way you can read either of those passages and, and not come away with that understanding. A very high cost to be a disciple. It, it requires us to give up our aspirations and our goals, materially, financially, personally, to turn over our self-importance and our pride. Being a disciple by its very definition is to become like Christ. And that would require a desire for holiness. It exacts a toll, which is obviously pleasing to the Lord. And I think as we think about that, that can help us rejoice with Eli and Jess as we think about uh, their journey. And they become and can be an example to us. And we can be about discipleship and the Great Commission ourselves. I think that's the best way to begin to look at that as we understand what's going on. And in our study, beginning back in verse 13 of chapter 12, and you can turn there now if you'd like, of 2 Corinthians, Paul's reaffirmed that reality for us. Really, that's been the, the overriding theme all the way through this section that we've labeled Marks of Ministry, Paul's example. Paul gave the church the example of persevering from verse 12, which was, is really part of the cost of counting the cost of ministry, sticking with it even in hard times. He gave them an example of selflessness from verse 13, of denying self and comfort and all the things that he really uh, could have had but decided not to take and took no, as we looked at, took no support from the church in Corinth uh, so that there would be no stumbling block. And he gave them an example of devotion from verse 14, of what it looked like to be committed to them. And from verse 15, a passage which aligns very well with our opening passage from Mark 10, uh, in verse 15 he says, um, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. You remember that? You can look back there and see that in chapter 12. And he gave this other example of ministry, and that was number four. Paul joyfully poured himself out for the ministry, and so should every minister. So we kind of see that idea of a, of a commitment of losing yourself to find it, losing your life to find it, giving yourself up for the gospel's sake, those kinds of things. And it was really to joyfully pour himself out was one of the important examples Paul modeled for us. And it's such a beautiful way to say it in verse 15. He said, I will most gladly, that's a superlative adjective, I would, we would say today, I'm thrilled. It'd be my great joy to go and pour myself out. And, and then the words spend and be expended are very important. And we saw these are verbs that deal with the future. Spend is what you bring with intent to the future relationship. It's what you're going to bring to give. Uh, and you're just offering this to the Lord as your sacrifice. And then to be expended is what the future will take out of you and what it's going to extract. One's future active, one's future passive. We looked at that at length. So no matter what it costs then, there are no reserves because you're losing your life to find it. You'll do it all. And he says, I'll most gladly spend and be expended. And then he says this, for your souls, for the souls of people. And we saw last week on Eli's face that very thing, didn't we? In the middle of his, of his presentation of, of the ministry work and where he was going to go, we saw him have to pause and get a hold of it and we saw his emotion as he talked about spiritual darkness that the people live in. We saw his emotion as he talked about those that haven't heard and his desire very much to see them here. And it costs a lot to pull yourself out and leave comfort behind for the innermost spiritual needs of others and for, uh, in order to prepare them for the kingdom because they're not and to teach them about God and to help them walk in obedience and to help them live lives for righteousness and holiness. See? To understand that their life is for the glory of God. That's the whole point of Mark 8, 35, right? Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but who loses it for my sake in the Gospels will find it. The, your whole life was made to be given up. See, You were made to be used for the Lord's glory. And his desire very much is to see that happen. So Paul, Paul of course, gives us this example, and he, and he has borne the cost of humble faithfulness over time, reigning his life in, in order to have a consistent testimony. From verse 16, he brought truthfulness, forthrightness, and sincerity. That was an example number six we saw. In other words, he just sums it up with the integrity of life, ordering your life in such a way that, that authentic Christianity is visible. And I posted a, 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 um, 
a quote this week on, on social media about, about that. You know, the, the world's not concerned about how much you know about the Bible. It's not concerned about how much theology you've mastered. You know what it's concerned about? It's concerned about your behavior. See, you can say you know all these kinds of things, and you can uh, have achieved a certain ability to articulate certain theology, but that's not what's important to the world. What's important to the world is that you live in such a way that obedience is obvious, and then the gospel is adorned. See, And that's the idea. Paul says, in my life as I've presented myself to you and to the world, truthfulness, forthrightness, and sincerity. You have to rein your life in. That's giving up your life to find it. See, And then number seven, we saw there was a single focus to bring people to maturity. Everything that he endured, everything that he did, how he stuck with it, it was all about you know, putting up with the troublemakers, all of that. It was all about the single focus to build the church up. And Eli even said that last week, that his single focus was to build the church. And then last time we read Paul's aside with the sinfulness and sinful troublemakers in the church, uh, before he comes and he says in verse 20, look there with me in chapter 12, or yeah, chapter 12, verse 20. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, he says, I may find you to be not what I wish. So some of the, the hardship he faces, uh, those who minister is to come and have to deal with this kind of thing. I'm afraid that I'm going to find you not to be what I wish. Many different types of sins plagued that church we saw last week or two weeks ago. And they plagued the church still, things like strife and jealousy, and angry tempers, and disputes, and slanders, and gossip, and arrogance, and disturbances. So these are things that are in the church, the gossips, and the slanders, and the disputes. And people participate them in them without a second thought. And so Paul is bringing those who are still doing that aside before he comes, because he wants to keep the trip on a very positive note, and not have to deal with these guys when they get there. So um, people do this. We looked at the company last week that these vices keep. This is what unredeemed people do. And so, and we also looked at the damage that those kinds of vices do to the church. He says, listen, I may come and find you not to be what I wish. You may still be doing these kinds of things. And we saw last week that these things must not be in the church. And that was clear, wasn't it? And that's another part of the cost that must be counted in ministry. And then he says this, I may be found by you not to be what you wish. And this is the uncomfortable job of every minister. Uh, but another example that we see modeled for us, and that was number eight, faithful minister has to address the hard things. Sometimes you have to address the hard things. And of course, uh, you know, this goes together with what we've seen true about the faithful pastor, a faithful minister. They're consumed with spiritual maturity of people. Uh, that's what they are called to see happen. That's what they're called to do is to see that maturity come about. That was always Paul's desire. We saw all through both books. That was his passion, his concern. It's the concern of any faithful minister, the sanctification of his people, the edification the building up, the purifying, the maturing, the, the nurturing, the growing of God's church more and more into the likeness of Christ, reaching the measure of the nature of the fullness of Christ. See, And so Paul marks these important things pretty clearly in his example for us. Now, verse 21, if you would, of chapter 12. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past, Here's the next part, not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. So there's a dread in Paul's statement. This is where we finished up last time. And that was number nine, as we see the very heart of Paul, the faithful minister is always deeply invested in the spiritual health of the people. And the spiritual health of the people, they encroach, and that encroaches in your sleep. If you're a faithful minister, it's going to encroach in your waking time. It's going to encroach in the time that you have privately. You're thinking about these kinds of things. It's in your mind. And there's a dread that the church or some in it will choose sinfulness. And then you'll always be in dread of bad testimony as a result of that sinfulness. A church given to carnality, I told you last week, that is the, that is the worst fear of a faithful minister. A church given to carnality. A church, after hearing the word taught, chooses to do foolishness and these kinds of things and stay there. And so he says in verse 21, I'm afraid when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And, and here's the thing. Paul's not afraid of criticism or cutdowns or gossip or backbiting because most of that dissension, gossip, and backbiting has to do with him. And, and of course, that creates hardship that they cause him personally. But uh, he's not in dread of that. He's in dread of the damage that those kinds of things do to the individual testimony and the corporate testimony of the church. That's the problem. So I'm afraid I'm when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. That's the aorist active subjunctive tapanuo, literally to make low. That when I come again, I'm going to be made low. It's in the subjunctive voice, so that's the voice of condition. The whole thing's conditional, and this is another thing that's conditional. I may mourn. Paul may grieve. He may weep. 
Again, in the subjunctive. And so here's the question. What are the conditions that are going to bring him down in front of them? What will bring about weeping and mourning? Here's what it is. Verse 21. Over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they practiced. If I come, Paul says, and you've continued in your sin in an unrepentant manner, I'm going to be humbled and sorrowful because you're still in sin. And you can see how invested he is in the right things. And that was the last, number 10, that we saw at the very heart of Paul. Faithful minister teaches intentionally to have one of the expected results of his teaching, admonishing, correcting, and instructing what? Repentance. That's the thing. And we looked at that word repent. It's one we're very familiar with, I think. Metaneo, it's um, a compound verb to perceive afterward. That's meta, that's, that's after, and then noeo to understand with a mind. So it's a change of thought and attitude and action with regard to sin and righteousness. In other words, the word is brought to bear. You see where you've done wrong, and you change your mind about it. You repent of it, and you turn, and you walk in a different direction than you did before. That's the understanding of metano, uh, metanoeo. So we saw from our study in 1 Corinthians that an atmosphere here in Corinth was conducive to immorality. And so when he writes this final letter, the apostle has reason to suspect, which is why he's kind of having this little on-the-side talk with these guys and girls before he gets there, that his earlier exhortations about not doing any of those things have not been taken to heart. So along with the continuing strife and jealousy and angry tempers and disputes and slanders and gossip and arrogance and disturbances that's going on, Paul suspects that and dreads that there'll be some still involved in impurity, immorality, and sensuality. And these kinds of sins were dominant features of pagan social life in Corinth. In fact, uh, they were the way of life in Corinth, just like they are today in our society. Immorality was rampant there. It's still rampant today. And we looked at this two weeks ago just briefly. Impurity is the first word. Acatharsia, that means, um, that means unclean. Cathartic is something that purifies or cleans, and A is a negative particle, so it's acatharsis. That means to become unclean, and that's just the general idea of uh, impure, impurity when it relates to sexually wicked living. It's just the general term for not living in line with what the Scripture says as your sexuality. And then immorality is that second word. We, that's the Greek word pornea from which we get our word pornography. It basically, it's easy to find. It has the word, it's the word fornication. It has to do with any sexual act outside of marriage. That's fornication. That was rampant in, in uh, first century. It's still rampant today. And then there's this word sensuality, as eglia. That's this word that um, basically is used to describe unrestrained sexual sin that's blatant and publicly indecent. And that certainly went on in temple worship in Corinth. It certainly goes on today. It's just exercised right out of the open. Everybody can see what's going on. And those three words are in the church. People in the church are participating. And so Paul has to have these words with them. And he says, I'm dreading that when I come and find things like these two things in the church, I'm going to find sins that destroy the fellowship and unity of the church, like strife and jealousy and angry tempers and disputes and slanders and gossip and arrogance and disturbances. And I'm going to find sins that destroy the purity and the power and the testimony of the church, like impurity, immorality, and sensuality. And we finished it last week this way, and I asked you this question. Does that bring a sense of dread to you? When you hear about that, does it strike you like that when you see either of those lists? Do you worry, and does that bring a sense of dread to you that that will be in the church? Or is, that, is that something that would make you low? See. When you hear about any of those lists, let alone participate in any of them, as we said last week, you know, both of those lists, there's not one worse than the other. All those things destroy the fabric of the church and are not to be in the church. And when you hear about any of those things and you know that they're going on or you, you see them going on or you suspect it, and, and that brings you low and that really brings you to a point where you just want to weep over it because it's just so destructive to the church body, then you are developing a heart of a minister. Someone who understands the heart of Christ as it relates to his church. And then on the other side, I would say, if that doesn't bother you, and you particip you're participating actively in those kinds of things, any of those lists, then you fall into the category of those Paul's having to have this conversation with. And that's very hard to hear and say. If your deepest desire is to see repentance like Paul's was, then you're developing the heart of a minister. And repentance will be a part of your daily life as long as you walk with the Lord here on this earth. 
For Paul, he dreads being brought low and mourning over these things because there's no sense of victory or success because you've reached a point where the sins of your people have so shamed and saddened you that you just have nothing left to give because they've continued to strike blows at the unity of the church and the purity of the church and against the truth that they've heard. It's just so difficult to deal with that. And, and it wasn't that Paul hadn't taught them the truth. He had. He had taught them the truth. And, and that's why it's so important, as we've said many times before, as your focus as a minister, as your focus as a teacher in a small group or whatever it is, it has to be what does the word say, what does it mean by what it says, and how does that apply to me and you? Because when you're leading people with the word and then people stay where they are and they won't move, when you come to that point, see, it's understandable that a minister loses heart because you've been giving them the truth. If you've just been giving them your five points of how they should live and then using the Bible to support your own suppositions, then it shouldn't surprise you that nobody's coming closer to the Lord. But if you're reading the Word carefully and teaching it carefully, it's going to lead, every part of it is going to lead to repentance. The praise part and the admonition part will get you to the point where you see what the Word says and then you come and you come in repentance. And it's not that we're looking for perfection. Uh, you know, we don't have it, and neither does anyone else. Uh, the, at this point, the flesh that you're in, uh, there's no point to be in this, no possible way to be in this flesh and not sin. It's just that we want to move more and more towards the perfection of Christ, like we saw just a minute ago. And, but we understand there's going to be sin in everybody's life. And all it is that the Lord expects is repentance for those things, see. And that breaks the pattern of shame and sadness that comes into the heart of the minister and certainly the shame and despair that comes into the heart of the individual who participates in any of those things. We expect to have to deal with sin in our own lives and sin in the lives of people, and we rejoice when there's repentance. Now, because um, this is an important word and it's not discussed very much in church, and maybe this is the first time you've heard a message on it, I want to spend a few minutes on it because it's very important, and we do that from time to time here uh, so that we break with the verse by verse just to go someplace and help you understand. And I want you to take, hold your finger in your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 2, if you would. Revelation chapter 2. And if you were with us a number of years ago, we went verse by verse through this letter, and then we went through correspondingly uh, Daniel. So you're very familiar with this if you've been with us for a while. But if you hadn't, if you haven't, then here uh, the Lord through John the Elder is writing to the early churches, seven of them actually, and I'd like you to see the emphasis. And remember we said before, these seven churches in Asia Minor represent churches all through the church age. We're still in the church age. So it starts with the first century churches, and he uses them as examples. And then we see examples of these kinds of things all through the church age. And you might find things that you see here that you can rejoice with, things that will bring you uh, some pain, and perhaps some things that can help you uh, as you think about your own life. But I think the most important thing we're going to see here is a continuing theme, which we'll see in just a moment. So... We're going to get a snapshot of things that concern Jesus in the church. And because Jesus is the author of the church and the head of everything, including all things the church, he has the right to say whatever he wishes, and that's what he's going to do. So look at Revelation chapter 2, and verse 2 is where we're going to start. And Jesus is speaking to the church at Ephesus. In verse 2, he says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, but you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. Verse 3, and you have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary, verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, I want to stop right there. And that's an important, as you may well imagine, that's a very important statement. And it's just so sad to hear, isn't it? What's it mean? Because that's probably what you're thinking. What's that mean you've left your first love? Well, I would propose to answer that question with a question. What is your first love when you come to Christ? It's Jesus, isn't it? It's Jesus. Often when, when folks will come to the office and they're struggling and they don't know if they're saved, not sure they're born again, I will ask them this question. I will say, express to me your feelings about Jesus. And their answer reveals a lot about where they are. It doesn't tell me whether or not they're born again or not, but it does tell me that probably the state of where they are in their spiritual walk. If somebody says, when I say that, if they say, what do you mean, which I've had that answer many times, what do you mean? And that tells me a whole lot about that relationship with that individual and Jesus. Because that's not a hard question to answer, is it? And you're probably doing it right now in your own mind. Express 
how you feel about Jesus. That's not a hard thing. In fact, it's kind of like prayer. Once you get going, it becomes a waterfall, doesn't it? It just kind of overflows out of you once you get going. But this is the problem here with the church. And Jesus says, listen, you know, um, and I would say, you know, you probably remember when you came to faith, if it's been a while, that Jesus was your first love. You're just so grateful for salvation. You're so grateful for being free from your sin and your chains and, and that he had redeemed you and loved you with an everlasting love and he sealed you and you can't ever get away and he saved you permanently. That's just an, that's just an overwhelming thought and yet it's just expressed in love for Jesus. And sometimes you just sat and you just prayed, I just love you, Christ. Thank you for all that you've done. You know? And so you've been there. I think you understand that. And, and here's the thing. You, you may still be doing everything right. I mean, look at verse 2. I know your deeds. So Jesus is looking at the church, and he always is, by the way, right? Where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the. So objectively, we understand that Christ is present every time we meet, if we come and meet in Jesus' name. And I would say that we came and we met today in Jesus' name, even if only two or three of us did, and I, I suspect that all of us did. So objectively, Jesus is serious. He sees everything that's gone on now and everything that's going to go on, and he's objectively present and is in his name so he knows what's going on so he says listen i know your deeds and listen to them i know your toil so they work hard and perseverance they stick with it when it's hard and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and are not i think paul would love that right because back in chapter 10 this is precisely what he said the corinthian church couldn't do they couldn't distinguish between a false apostle and a real one but he says, listen, you can watch the TV and you see somebody who says, I'm an apostle. And you're okay, I'm turning that off because he's a liar. Because there's no way they can be an apostle in this century because all those people died. And that didn't get continued. Because there were certain qualifications for that very small subset. And that's not repeated at all today. And so they can discern that. They don't tolerate evil men who are amongst their midst. They put them out. They call themselves apostles. They're not. They found to be false Verse 3, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary even in hard work. So this sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, this is what we want to be. It's where we'd like to be. But you're doing it, mark it, without thinking about Jesus for his glory, in other words, for his honor, that he would be pleased as an expression of thanks for his sacrifice. You're doing it all because it's busy work and you know that you should do it. And here's the question, have you ever been there? Going through all the motions, doing all the right things, but it's not out of a love for Christ because you're doing it because they need to be done or someone is expecting you to do it or because you're a doer or because if you don't do it, it won't get done or whatever it is. And then Jesus says, figure it out. Look at verse 5. Figure it out. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen. In other words, take a step back, have a hard look inside and figure out what the problem is because there's a problem. And then what? What's the next word? If you're with me, you know what it is. Verse 5. Repent. Step back, figure it out, how you've left your first love, and then what? Repent. And do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. In other words, the church is going to dissolve. That church, wherever that is, is going to dissolve. It's not going to be there anymore. They're taking away, the Lord is taking away that fire that's there in the church. And we've seen this happen over and over again throughout the ages. Okay? I'm doing the right things and I need to repent? Yes, if you're doing them for the wrong reasons. And we saw that before, didn't we, from Scripture's teaching in the Bema Seat Judgment? That when the Lord judges all the works of everything that's built on the foundation of Christ, some is gold, silver, and costly stone, and others is wood, hay, and straw. And the wood, hay, and straw is stuff done for a reason other than the glory of Christ. Things that are done in the flesh, things that are done with a bad attitude, all those kinds of things, the Lord weighs them out. You don't get credit for doing them if you're doing them for the wrong reason. So this aligns perfectly with what we understand uh, is the Lord's evaluation of the church. And again, even the Lord doesn't expect sinlessness in his church. That's why he's taking the time to address this church in Ephesus. And, and we understand this church, don't we? I mean, Paul visited there. Timothy was the pastor there. We have a, a letter that's associated with Paul to them. So this is an established church. He doesn't expect sinlessness, but when he points out the problems, what's he expect? He expects repentance, okay? Now look at verse 13, a letter to the church of Pergamum. Chapter 2, verse 13, look there. 
I know where you dwell, so he's speaking to the church, where Satan's throne is. That doesn't sound too nice, does it? Um, we understand from Ephesians that uh, demons are in control of, the, of governments and, and all that kind of thing. So obviously there's some big influence here where this church is located at this point. And Satan's activity are very, very strong. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my, my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So in other words, there was a guy there, perhaps a, a leader in the church, perhaps an elder of the church. He was killed uh, and they didn't lose hope and they, they, stuck fa- they stayed fast and, and worked hard and they were faithful. He says, some of you have been doing a really good job. Keep it up. And some of you have been faithful witnesses in a difficult ministry, even in the, in, as a result of someone being killed uh, there where Satan dwells, but some of you not so much. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teachings of Balaam and keep teaching, uh, keep, or kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Verse 15, so you have some who in the same way Hold the teachings of the Galatians. Let's stop right there. And all of that has to do with buying into the culture on morality and living like the culture does in open sexual sin. Because that's the whole thing with Balaam and Balak. Remember? I mean, convince them to, to do immoral things. And uh, from Jewish history, that was in the book of Numbers. If you've not read that, you can go back and catch that. And then verse 15 so you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of Nicolaitans. What's it mean in the same way? Well, very similar types of actions connected with your understanding. So they were deceived by Nicholas. And if, if you remember in Acts chapter 6, he was one of the ones who was appointed as a deacon in the early church. Ended up being a false believer, led a lot of people astray. And he taught that it didn't matter what you did, God would forgive. So they lived in sexual license and misusing grace. And we see that a lot today, don't we? We see uh, couples in the church, they'll say, you know, well, we're not married, but we love each other. And God understands and he forgives us, but we're, you know, we're living together and we're having sex, fornication. And, and it's not a big deal because God's, God's faithful and he'll, he'll forgive us. And that's the teaching of the Nicolaitans. It's not new. It's been around a long time. And so he says, listen, you've got some who are doing that, and you have some who are acting uh, immorally, just like, they, just like uh, Balaam and, and Balak uh, taught Jew, the Jews to do. So that sounds a lot like the Corinthian church, doesn't it? And what does Jesus say to that? Verse 16, therefore, what's the next word? Repent. Again, he doesn't expect the church to be sinless, does he? But he expects when he points out an issue, he expects the church to Repent, those who were involved with it. Or else I'm going to come to you quickly, and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent, that doesn't sound very fun, does it? The sword of Jesus' mouth is the word of God, and we know that when he comes in power at the end of the tribulation period, he's going to slay people with the word of his mouth. My boys have asked me when they were young, what's that mean? I just think that that just means this. If it says, those who sin will surely die, then when he quotes those passages, all the who sin will die. It's very simple. Right? The actual punishment related to the infraction will come true. But here he says, I'm going to come and I'm going to war against them with the sword of my mouth. You don't want to be on the end of that, do you? So repent, 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 right? Metanoeo, uh, aorist, active imperative. What's it mean to repent? Well, you know, consider the pattern of sin, turn around, go the other direction. Wash, rinse, repeat. Wash, rinse, repeat. This is this established behavior for those in the church. This is how you came into faith. This is how you continue to walk in obedience with the Lord. Same thing in chapter 2, verse 18, right? We see that as well. Um, Thyatira, the Lord's talking to them and um, says Jesus even gave the church time to repent and they didn't and now judgment's coming. And then you get to chapter 3, verse 1. We can't spend a lot of time here. Obviously, we'd, we'd spend all of our time here. He says this in verse 1 in chapter 3. Look there with me. I know your deeds. And um, he's talking to the church. And he says, I know your deeds. Of course, we just talked about how they know that. And... Um, this is the church of Sardis, and he says, um, and you have a name that you are alive. And so, you know, the name of the fellowship was, I'm sure, associated with a Greek word there in Sardis that had to do with life, like Zozon or Poyao or something, you know, Dozon Fellowship or Poyao Fellowship. You know, we have churches like that now. You know, they, they name themselves whatever, Alive Fellowship, Alive Community Church. You know, it's, it's not wrong with that. I mean, as you drive through, you go across the country, uh, we enjoy looking at the names of churches. And uh, when they get longer and longer, we really enjoy that, you know. But um, it's, it's not wrong to say that. But they have a name. Here's the problem. They have a name that says they're alive. But here's the thing. No matter what the name of the fellowship was, it was a misnomer because Jesus sums it up. What's he say? You're dead. You have a name that says you're alive, but you're not alive. Because I know your deeds. See? 
How devastating is that? On the sign out there, you know, digital sign running all the stuff, it says you're alive, and Jesus says, it doesn't care what the sign says, you're dead. Obviously, it started out strong, no longer, because they're filled with unredeemed people. That's what it means to have a dead church. It's a church that's made itself so relevant to the community that unredeemed people can sit and fill the pulpits, fill the, the seats. And if unredeemed people are sitting and filling the seats and they don't feel uncomfortable at all, guess what? You have a dead church because you're not accomplishing what you're supposed to do. Church is where the saints meet. We're not supposed to conform the church to, so the world is waking up over there and thinking, instead of going golfing today, I think I'm going to go over to Berean. It's a lot of fun. Nobody's waking up over there and saying that, okay? And we shouldn't expect that they would. But when you've, if you tailored your church so that unredeemed feel completely comfortable and they never get the gospel, you have a dead church. And that's what's going on here. And what does Jesus say they have to do about it? Well, in verse 2, he begins to define repentance. Let's read it. Okay, look at verse 2, chapter 3. Wake up. You know, hello. I've said a lot of things about the church. Wake up. In other words, consider the pattern of sin. And then he says, and strengthen the things that remain. So the things that you're doing right, do it more. Because he says, which are about to die. So wake up, strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die. Because they're on life support. So in other words... There's some things that are good or perhaps some people there who are, are redeemed, but they're living like the world we just saw just a minute ago, like an unbeliever, you know, like we see back in 2 Corinthians 12, 20, and 21, you know, strife and jealousy and, and tempers and disputes and slanders and gossip and arrogance and impurity and immorality and sensuality. And if that's in the church, even among the redeemed, then the church is dead and the rest is on life support. See? And so he says to the church, hey, wake up. And you can imagine there are kinds of churches like that, maybe were really on fire at the beginning, or maybe they had great aspirations at the start, and they named themselves accordingly, and, and they take pride in that name, whatever it is, Jesus' evaluation is the one that matters, and he says, for I have not found, look there at the rest of chapter, verse 2, I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. You haven't done what you're supposed to do. Verse 3, so remember, again, defining repentance, remember what you've received and heard and keep it. And so it always points back to what? It points back to what the Word of God says. What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? Go back. Remember these kinds of things. Wake up. And then what? What's it say? What's the next word? Repent. Repent. Once you realize what you've done wrong, repent. Mark it. Therefore, he says, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you'll not know at what hour I'm going to come, but you have a few people at Sardis who've not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So not everyone at the church has to, continue, has to repent of these kinds of sins. Some don't have to, just the ones who are unredeemed and the ones who've soiled their garments, who continue to live like the world and doing the kinds of things we see on the list. Now look at verse 15, and we're going to speed through this. This is the church at Laodicea. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 15. I know your deeds. Again, the Lord knows the deeds because he's here. That you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold, that's refreshing, or hot, so that's purifying. But because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, verse 17, I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Boy, he's not missing any words, is he? Probably a church that has some money, perhaps a church that's uh, a very wealthy church. They, they're very insulated from any thought of perhaps they might come in calamity. There might be hardship that would come on them. They're insulated from that because they think that they're, they're secure. And they say, hey, you know, we're rich and we've become wealthy and we don't need anything. The Lord's really blessed us and we're good. And he says, no, that's not the case. You're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And that sounds like Paul with the Corinthian church, doesn't it? I wish you did rule as kings, didn't he say? So we could rule with you. Arrogant, self-absorbed things, same thing going on. Remember 1 Corinthians 4.10? We're fools for Christ's sake, but you're prudent. Right? We're weak, but you're strong. We're, uh, you know, you're distinguished, but we're without honor. Now, all that sarcasm just kind of pointing out, you've got this idea, an overflated uh, understanding of your, own, uh, of your own importance. Now look back to verse 17 of chapter 3 of Revelation. Verse 18, rather, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And beloved, all those things are th things that come from the written word of God and they're all fruits of regeneration, aren't they? 
the white garment that covers, the garment of righteousness that covers our nakedness, the, the uh, gold refined by fire, which will really make you rich, the understanding of the gospel. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I'm telling you all this because I love you, he says. And what do you need to do? What's the last part? Therefore, be zealous and repent. Again, another church, same exact instruction. First part, be zealous. Set your heart on something. Desire to see something come to pass. Present active imperative. A consuming desire. Beloved, anytime you see present active imperative, people always say, well, I'd really like to know what the Lord wants me to do. Well, anytime you see present active imperative in the Word of God, that is what the Lord wants you to do. It's a direct instruction from Him to you. Okay? So be zealous and repent. That's the second part. Aorist active imperative. Do it actually make it happen people get sad about i mean we preach messages like this people are thinking man i I have really messed this up i'm living in open sinfulness i I fit into one of those categories and they feel badly and the lord doesn't expect us to have sinless perfection what he expects us is to be zealous and they'll go out and they just say man i really need to straighten my life up you got to follow up just zealously walking out and feeling bad is not going to accomplish anything you're zealous to repent when the lord lays it on your heart bring it before him we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He beckons us to come. All the things that were against you were nailed to the cross. Everything. So come. It's just so obvious that this is what God's asking for his church to do. Repent. And, and beloved, it flows out of a brokenness over sin. And it flows out of a remorseful heart and an admission and a confession of sin and telling the Lord you desire to turn from it. And then volitionally turning from it in the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And and that is obviously Jesus' call to his church throughout all the ages. We can see that, can't we? We see repeated over and over again in these two chapters of Revelation. That's Paul's call to the church at Corinth. It's ever minister's call to the church they minister. And if you stick with the word of God and you teach it, that's exactly what will come out as we just illustrated. You will give the opportunity for repentance and you'll pray that that's what people do. And a faithful pastor is concerned about the sanctification of the church and the building up of the church. And that starts with being concerned for the repentance of the people. And when sin, because when sin, beloved, and this is so important, when sin is successful in taking you captive through the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the boastful pride of life, it's where we find all the seed of all the sins that beset people. When, they take, when you're taken captive, you will repent. And in the grace of God, you'll be washed clean and you'll get up and you'll continue on the path of sanctification. That is the process. It's how you came to faith and it's how you stay in fellowship. It's precisely what the Lord wants his church to do. And this is the path of an effective, vibrant church. It's holiness. Not sinless perfection. That's not possible in this body. But pursuing holiness through repentance. Because the hope of the church and the impact of the church is all connected to the purity of the church. Holiness is the issue. Listen, you want to have an impact church? They're not, they don't care what you say out there. They don't care that Berean studies the Bible verse by verse, exegetical, expositorily. They, they know that. Most people in the community know that. They don't care about that. What, you know what they care about? Your behavior and my behavior in amongst them. In your workplace, you adorn the gospel when you live like that, see? And you're only going to live like that when you see where you've erred and you repent and you change direction. And then the world's like, you know, their actions are a lot different. They are a lot different than the world is. See? And then you have an opportunity to give the gospel. Holiness is a issue. That's why Paul says this to the church in court. Now look at chapter 12, verse 21. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they practice. And that's certainly not what I wish for you. I don't want you to stay there. I don't know what's in your life. There's no way for me to discern that. But whatever it is, the Word of God deals with it, and you shouldn't stay there. Because those things destroy you and destroy the church. And those are the kinds of things that make the church irrelevant, beloved. Those things rampantly in the church, that first or second list, that makes the church irrelevant. Strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance. Those are the things that make the church lose its impact. These things quench the power of the Holy Spirit. And if this is the case, 
Paul says, I won't be what you wish. And so he says now, look at chapter 13, verse 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said, when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who sinned in the past and to all the rest, those who are hanging on to that sin, continuing even though we've discussed it, even though we've shown you where you've erred, you stick with that, you stay there in an unrepentant state, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone since you are seeking proof, verse 3, of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you but mighty in you. Now we're going to look at this next time because we're completely out of time. But this is the, this will just foreshadow it a little bit. This is the 11th example of Paul, the faithful minister. They must be willing to confront sin with discipline. And that might be hard for you to hear. And I would imagine because that is the way that the general consensus of pastors today that don't do any of this and maybe you've never been anywhere where that had to happen. But as we read about the churches in Revelation, what was the Lord doing in nearly every church? In fact, um, even more to the point, who was each letter addressed to? You remember? They always start to the messenger of the church of whatever. And the messenger is the man who leads the church. That's the elders who are there, the elder who's in charge, whatever that is. And then Jesus says to them, he says to that messenger, confront this. You have a name that says you're alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen the things that remain. Keep the things you've heard and repent. You're wretched, blind, poor, naked. Buy gold from me with white clothing and shame of your nakedness will not be revealed any longer. You see? Everyone is addressed to the leader. Everyone is addressed from there down to do with what he's supposed to do. And, and here's the thing, and I, and I want to pull this in because I think this will help you as you think about what we just said. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, this is going to pull in everybody. Not just those who, who are elders in the church. Not just those who lead the church. This is everybody. He says, brethren. So everyone in the church. Paul is addressing the church at Galatia, and he says, brethren. So that's everybody, all the believers. Even if anyone is caught, that's taken captive. We've seen that word over and over again. Temporarily taken captive by sin. In any trespass, that's a sin. You who are spiritual... So, brethren, if you're spiritual, what's your job? Restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So here we are. And we're going to look at these things next week, Lord willing. But that pulls everybody into it, doesn't it? And when everybody's doing that job, beloved, we don't have to do it corporately too often because we're taking care of each other and we're bearing one another's burdens, which we see later in that very passage. And so... I'm hoping, you know, there's going to be a lot of questions, and I know, I hope that you'll be back next week because we'll fill all this in, but I want to remind you that when Jesus began to address the future church and the relationships which would be part of that body, he's talking to his disciples in Matthew 18, and he says to them, if someone is in sin, go to him. If he doesn't listen, take two or three witnesses. If he doesn't listen, tell the church, and after the church has pursued him, if he still doesn't repent, throw him out and treat him like an outcast. That's very straightforward and very hard to say and very hard to hear. That's not how it has to be, right? Because if we're keeping a short sin list and we see what the Word says and we repent, you're never that person, are you? Um, if somebody, as we see in Galatians 6.1, comes to you and says, listen, it appears that you're in a sinfulness, a pattern of sinfulness. You know, you shouldn't be there. This is going to destroy you. It destroys the fabric of the church. Let me help you. Let me help you break free. Let me show you what I learned to help me. See? But if the case is that it's an unrepentant sin continuing, then this is, uh, this is the formula. And people hear that, and I've heard this over and over again. You can't do that. I mean, that's, that'll destroy the church. You, you discipline someone in the church, you're destroying the church. And there's much we're going to talk about. I would beg to differ with you. I would say that it's the opposite reaction it occurs. But that appears to be the general consensus because the majority of pastors don't do this, and perhaps you've never been in a church that ever has had to do it. But I would say to you, just based on what we just looked at, and this is the last thing I'm going to say because we're out of time. If impurity and unchecked sinfulness, which are the topics of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, manifested in unrepentance, which is the whole reason why Paul's having this discussion with them before he gets there, to plead with them to repent and stop doing what they're doing. 
and we understand that that's deadly to the church, and we also understand that repentance from everything we looked at just a minute ago is the key to holiness and is the key to a powerful church and a church that functions as it should. And that's supposed to be a regular part of the life of the believer, which we can't deny. Then these next few verses in chapter 13 are part of the process that God can use to accomplish the work he wishes to do in the church. That's how that's got to be. Because not, God's not content to leave his church like it is. Repent or I'm going to come and I'll take away your lampstand. Repent or I'm going to come and I'll make war with you at the words of my mouth. See. He has the right to say what he wants to the church. And so we read it and we understand uh, what those plain words mean. And then we begin to do those things if we haven't. First thing is, first step always is a self-evaluation. You who are spiritual. Make sure that that's where you are. Make sure there's no one... There's hidden camouflage or open, perhaps, sinfulness in your life, and repent. Then you're in a position where the Lord can bless. All right? Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for the generous nature of your grace, which has allowed many, perhaps all, who sit here today to come into a right relationship with you. Through Jesus, who, while we were yet sinners, died for us. All of us have sinned and fallen short of your glory, Father, and the wages of that sin is death but the gift that you gave us is eternal life through Jesus. And for that, we're so grateful. To get that gift, we have to come in repentance, confessing our sin, owning it, a desire to turn away. We can't do that apart from the Holy Spirit drawing us. So if he's drawing you today, do what he says. For those who are already redeemed, it's certainly possible to be in sin. We're still in the body, which has its desires, and that doesn't excuse us. We're supposed to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Because we have died in Christ and risen in Christ. But regardless, those things find their way in our life. And perhaps we've been negligent in confessing and repenting. Perhaps we've even enjoyed for a season those kinds of things and don't realize we've been taken captive. These are the days that we can make the difference. Today's the day you can understand those things and respond. That's certainly our prayer for you, my prayer for you. Lord, as we see this and we see a pattern that you've established, as we understand this last a little section of this letter to the Corinthian church and realize this is Paul writing and pouring out his heart. Help us to come away with the things that we need to know. It is our desire to be a church uh, that is in conformity to your will. It's our desire to be a church that you don't have to say, I've seen your deeds and I'm disappointed. I've seen your deeds. You're not doing what you did before. I've seen your deeds and you've forgotten your first love. You have open sinfulness in your church. We don't want to be that church. We want to be the church that you are seeing a church that's uh, seeking forgiveness and coming to you in repentance and walking in holiness where you can work amongst us in power. What a joy it is to, to see you do that. And so, Lord, that's our prayer today. It's our great uh, joy to even say the hard things and see the hard things and know that it's because you love us. As, as you said to the church, I'm not saying this because I hate you. I'm saying this because I love you. Be fervent, repent. Be zealous. So, Father, we thank you for all of this. We're so grateful to you for our salvation. For those who don't know you perhaps today and sit here in a lost state, that you know you're guilty of your sin. And if you don't want God in the picture, you will pay for that. You'll get what you want. You won't like what you get. You'll pay for that forever in hell. Scripture is very clear about that. But that's not the place he'd like you. In fact, hell wasn't even made for people, although people will be there made for Satan and the demons. But if you continue to stay in your sin, and you don't repent of that sin, and ask for forgiveness, and claim the cross and Jesus' payment as yours, and you will find yourself there. What a tragedy that would be. To be in a church that's alive and you be dead. Don't let that be the case for you. And we thank you in advance for all that you're going to do through your word, by your Holy Spirit, that you send it out and it doesn't return to you except that it accomplishes all that you said for it to accomplish. We give you thanks for that and all God's people said.